0: Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so began Paul in his letter to the Philippians. I don't know if you have caught that before. Like sometimes at the beginning of sermons, we have this little line that we say that I just said, right? That's not an original thing that we're saying. Paul came up with that and starts many of his letters with that line. So, so chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, remember, this is not just a book of the Bible. This is a letter. A letter that Paul was writing to a congregation that he loved. A congregation that he helped form there in Philippi a congregation that had supported Paul in his ministry, even sending one from the congregation to come to him in prison with a gift to help perpetuate the ministry of Paul. So Paul is thankful for the Philippians. And that's why we're calling this uh, uh, series a thank you series. It's like a thank you letter. But not just to the Philippians. Today in chapter 2, Paul moves the thanks From this Philippian congregation whom he loves uh, to the one that has brought them together, to the very Son of God, to Jesus Christ himself. And that's our goal today. That's my goal for you. (laughs) Is that we would say, Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you, God, for your Son. And maybe at first glance you think, well, that's pretty obvious, right? Thank you, God, for Jesus. I mean, isn't that what we come here every week to do, right? To thank God for Jesus. I mean, don't we come into this place to give Jesus thanks and praise because He's our salvation and He is our King? Right? We 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 thank God for Jesus because we like Jesus. Isn't it obvious? Sometimes we give tasks at the end of our sermons for you to do, and maybe this one seems like a low bar. Okay, thank Jesus, I can do that. Check. But before we move too quickly to that praising and thanking, I want us to remember who we're thanking God for. I want us to think about the real Jesus. Jesus the person who we're giving God thanks for, because Jesus, if you know this, Jesus was never really liked by anybody. There's no one in the Gospels who really likes Jesus because Jesus doesn't elicit or evoke that kind of a response. This is what led uh, John Stott. Uh, He's an Anglican priest. Uh, to write in his book Basic Christianity that there's really only one way to respond to Jesus. and He says that way is extremely. Extremely is the only response. And John's speaking biblically about that. So if you think back to the Gospels, when Jesus interacts with people, they respond extremely. Some hate Jesus. Some fear Jesus, some love Jesus, but it's always a strong response. No one ever just likes Jesus. So for instance, some people hate Jesus. Uh, You might think of Jesus' first sermon. You can read about it in Luke 4. Uh, Jesus, he's come into a synagogue, no one knows that he's the son of God yet. And he opens this big scroll from Isaiah, and he reads it, and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the congregation kind of gets excited, and they think, oh, great, this is going to be a good sermon. This is preaching we haven't heard, and they're kind of ready to be affirmed, to be built up. By the end of Jesus' sermon, the crowd from that church has pushed Jesus to a cliffside ready to throw him off the cliff to his death because of the words that he spoke, words that convicted them, got underneath them. You might think of people who feared Jesus. In Mark chapter 5, there's a story of a man who was possessed by a demon, and he was found in the cemeteries cutting himself and beating himself, and he was kind of a crazed man. Until Jesus came into his life, and Jesus drove out this demon from him, radically changed this man's life until he was sitting, dressed, and in his right mind. But when the crowds came from the village to see this miracle that had been done, they were shocked. Because the, the, the normal people had always seen this crazed man in the cemeteries and thought, "Who?" Hate to be that guy. Hate to be this crazed man. Thankfully, I'm not like him. I'm pretty well put together. I'm pretty nice. But when Jesus healed this man, he flipped that social order. He flipped that social order and brought this man back into community, back into being a human, and and the people were astounded. They really couldn't settle with that. And, And it says that they begged Jesus to leave because they were afraid of the power that he had. People hated Jesus. People feared Jesus. Of course, people loved Jesus. You know the stories of the disciples and those who gave their life for Jesus? Those who, who saw his power and heard his words, and though those words cut deep into them, they saw in Jesus something that was not available anywhere else. And so they made Jesus the very pinnacle of their life. The thing that they put above all other things, gave most their praise to. The thing that was the f- on their mind to praise, at the beginning of their day. Right, this Jesus, whom they loved. But no one really liked Jesus. Because Jesus is an affront to us. Jesus was an affront to the people. The words that he spoke is like a sword, Hebrews said, cutting to the heart, splitting between bone and marrow. And we have some more of these confronting words in Philippians chapter 2. But maybe they didn't hit us when we first heard them. You know, if you're like me, sometimes I read the Bible and you know, I read a few verses and I say, oh, that's nice, you know. Sounds kind of sweet, sounds poetic. That's nice, I say. (laughs) Because I'm not really thinking of the implications. I'm not really taking God's word and ingesting it and and thinking through, how does this shape how I live? Right, so let's look at the very beginning of this this pericope. Verse 3. Jesus says, through the Apostle Paul, through his pen, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition. The Greek word there is aretheon. It's found only outside of the New Testament in Aristotle's works, and there to refer to a politician trying to gain political prowess or favor. Kind of timely with the election coming up here. But Paul here is not saying, don't go be a politician, right? Paul is saying, don't live out that little bit of us, all of us, that acts like a politician. Right? That part of us that wants to, to put on kind of our best uh, front, our best face in front of the world when the world is watching to seek but at the same time, to, to hold over and expose maybe the faults of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition. I mean, this means for us that, that we are not to play the, the political game in the office, those office politics, which apply even if you don't work in an office, by the way. Right? So it's, it's that kind of spirit that, that might happen in the workplace where. Yeah, you work hard, and you're you're doing a good job, and you're sweating, and you're you're putting in the hard work when the manager is watching. Eh, But when they're turning an eye away, or when you're not being supervised, you kind of kick back and relax a little bit. Hey, you know, you're just here to kind of eat the clock, right? Make a paycheck, gain something for yourself. Or maybe it shows up by those conversations held about that one coworker you have. You know, the one that kind of gets pinned with all the bad stuff, the, the Jerry's of, uh, of the office, right? They, yes, where was that laugh? Awesome. Parks and Rec. <laughs> we exploit the flaws of others to make ourselves look better so that we might get that promotion, so that we might at least not face the chopping block, right? Paul says, do nothing. This spirit cannot live in you, do nothing from selfish ambition. It means not keeping track or score in our marriages or in our relationships. When somebody has hurt us, holding that sin over their head, when it comes to a decision, trying to decide what's our path forward and saying, well, I think you remember how this went last time when you decided right? We expose the flaws of others so that we can have our way. Paul says, none of that can exist with us. He goes on to say, do nothing out of conceit. That's to get glory for ourselves, right? What's Paul saying? He's saying no idle talk no no chatter about how great we are telling those stories that kind of put us on a little bit of a pedestal which we so often tell kind of mindlessly right because we want people to like us we want people to praise us we want people to think we're great and so we we choose and select those stories that'll cast that image to consider well, that's not that doesn't put us in the hero position We can get pretty imaginative about ourselves. Maybe sitting in the classroom and looking up at the professor and thinking, they think they know what they're talking about. I already know all this stuff. I don't really need to pay attention, need to listen. It's an illusion. It's embedded deep within us, this notion that we're so great, that we're so much better. Paul says we can have nothing of that. And that bothers us. It bothers us when we hear these commands of God, right? To live a certain way, to be a certain way, because we feel like it stifles us. We feel like God gets in the way of us getting ahead. How are we supposed to climb the ladder when everyone else is playing the politic game if I can't play it? How am I supposed to win the favor of others if everyone else is always jawing off about how great they are but I'm not supposed to speak a word like that? We take Jesus' path, and we tend to flip it, right? Jesus, in in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped. See, but we, we are not equal with God, and yet we want to make ourselves God, to be able to decide for ourselves what is good and right for us what will be useful and successful for us. We want to determine that for ourselves. We don't want God to tell us how to do it. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, but we want to be something. We want to make ourselves something. And we'll do that very often at the expense of ourselves, our true selves, maybe at the expense of our relationships, But we're not alone in this. Our first LCMS president even understood this. CFW Walther, he wrote this. He wrote, at first I was angry with God. I hated Him for demanding so many things of me. I would have liked to cast Him from His throne. I thought in my heart it would be better if there were no God. Thank God for Jesus. It's a tough thing to say when we see Jesus and hear Jesus for who He really is because it cuts, right? It cuts. But we have to remember who wrote these words here in Philippians. And remember our brother Paul. Paul, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul, who knew a thing or two about uh, sitting on a high horse, right? And not just literally. I mean, he was on a horse on the way to Damascus. But if you read in chapter 3, listen to Paul talk about himself. This is Paul before he met Jesus. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I was at the top of my game. Then Jesus met him on the road, and he knocked Paul off that high horse, and he exposed to Paul that blindness that he had been living in. Paul was blind, had to be set free by Ananias, but Paul, in a much bigger way, in a much deeper way, was spiritually blind because he had built his life and his identity on something other than the Christ and Jesus, but Jesus came to him. Jesus revealed himself to Paul, and listen to Paul go on in chapter 3. He says, I used to count these things as something, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul discovered along the way that there was a much better way to live. That these vain pursuits in life, even the vain glory that we so often seek for ourselves, rubs nothing in comparison to Christ. We heard last week how much joy Paul had in his life. But this joy, it comes in a cutting way, right? We see it in Jesus that the way up, the way to exaltation, also means going down. And Jesus would even say to Paul that that he would have to suffer many things on account of Christ's name. But this is the beauty of Jesus. And this is why we ought to give thanks that Jesus is God. Because every other religion and every other group and every other uh, situation we're in demands that we continue to perform like a politician. I mean, why are they so intent upon putting on that good face? Why does no politician ever admit that they, you know, kind of suffer or fail in some way? Because they need to prove themselves and prove themselves so that they may get elected. And so often we get caught in that trap too of trying to prove ourselves. But Jesus... The beauty of Jesus is that he sees us in that lowest place. Jesus speaks a hard word into our life and exposes for us to see how far we are from God. He exposes our spiritual blindness to us. He he helps us to see our own filth, our own ugliness. But then he meets us there. The cross is the place where Jesus condescends himself to meet us, where we were furthest from him. Philippians says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think a lot of times it's easier to like Jesus because we're afraid to interact with the real Jesus. Because we're afraid that if we, if we see and talk to the real Jesus, we're going to sink. Right? And it's partly true. When we stare into the face of God, into his holiness, we will discover parts of us, parts of the way that we live that have to die, that are going to be hard to give up. But Jesus says, That's the way to exaltation. That when we crucify ourselves, and when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, that is where we find true freedom. And Jesus has already met us there no matter where we are. Again, think of who's writing this letter, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, when Jesus met him on the road, was murdering Christians breathing out threats upon them, and yet this is who God chose. God met Paul in the lowest spot of his life, spiritually speaking. He thought he was here, but he was so far below. And that's where God met him in Christ. And God meets you there, too. God says, come to me. Jesus says, meet me here at the cross. Be forgiven of these things, and let me show you a new way. Built your life on me. Because when we try so desperately to become our own kings and our own gods to decide for ourselves, inevitably we end up losing ourselves. We damage those around us. If we're that person at the job site who's constantly tearing others down to build ourselves up, we're going to damage those relationships. We're going to become someone we never intended to be if we're always putting on this best front and out of touch with the areas in which we are broken, we're going to have this idea of ourselves that we're so much better than maybe we actually are. That's going to become an impotence, a block in our relationships. Jesus says, you got to see, you got to open your eyes. but Then be forgiven. Be forgiven by me. I love the poem by... Uh, Francis Thompson. Uh, It's called The Hound of Heaven. And he put it this way in his poem. He said, Human love needs human meriting. How hast thou merited? Of all man's cotted clay, clotted clay, the dingiest clot. Alack, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me. Save only me. We're scared to reveal these deeper parts of ourselves to the world because we know, like Thompson is saying, human love needs human meriting. You have to earn people's love, earn their trust, and when you break it, usually it's just gone. Gone. Jesus Christ, he sees us at our worst, and yet he loves us to the the skies. Jesus sees us at our lowest point, and he meets us there and loves us to the heavens. And this is why the psalmist in Psalm 48 said, walk about Zion, go around her. That term Zion, that's referring to the temple, right? The mountain of God where the people went to see the sacrifices, see the animals that, that's blood were shed because of the wrong, the sin that the people had done, right? And they saw God's forgiveness spoken to them. Jesus is the new Zion. When the psalmist says, walk about Zion and go around her, number her towers, consider well her rank go through her citadels? Listen to Jesus. Hear from him. Let his word penetrate deep into our hearts so that we can tell the next generation that this is God. A God who loves us in spite of all things we've done. Our task this week Thank you to God for Jesus. I don't have thank you notes today. There's no card to write. You can save yourself some postage. But I want you to thank God for Jesus this week. And I don't want you to do it thoughtlessly or mindlessly. I want you to take time. Think about something particular, a particular way which you are thankful for Jesus because how he has come into your life. Maybe it looks like writing it down, journaling it. Maybe it looks like just sitting in silence and thinking for a while. Maybe it'll even look like being in the midst of a a bad situation that you're the cause of. You've done something wrong. And in that moment, think. Jesus meets me here. Thank you, God, for Jesus. It's in his name that we live and move and breathe. Amen.